I've selected a reading by D.H. Lawrence. There are no gods, and you can please yourself. Have a game of tennis, go out in the car, do some shopping. Sit with a cigarette browning in your fingers. There are no gods, and you can please yourself. Go and please yourself. But leave me alone, leave me alone to myself. And then in the room, whose is the presence that makes the air so still and lovely to me? Who is it that softly touches the sides of my breast and touches me over the heart so that my heart beats soothed, soothed, soothed and at peace? Who is it that smooths the bedsheets like the cool, smooth ocean where the fishes rest on edge in their own dream? Who is it that clasps and kneads my naked feet till they unfold, till all is well, till all is utterly well? The lotus lilies of the feet. I tell you, it is no woman, it is no man, for I am alone. And I fall asleep with the gods, the gods that are not, or that are, according to the soul's desire, like a pool into which we plunge, or do not plunge. I want to begin with a poem by Stephen Dunn, and it's not intended to be frivolous, by the way. And it's entitled, At the Smithville Methodist Church. It was supposed to be arts and crafts for a week. But when she came home with a Jesus Saves button, we knew what art was up and what ancient craft. She liked her little friends. She liked the songs they sang when they weren't folding paper into dolls. What could be so bad? Jesus had been a good man, and putting faith in good men was what we had to do to stay this side of cynicism, that other sadness. Okay, we said, one week. But when she came home singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, it was time to talk. Could we say that Jesus doesn't love you? Could I tell her that the Bible is a great book that certain people unfortunately use to make you feel bad? We sent her back to Sunday school without a word. It had been so long since we believed, so long since we needed Jesus as our nemesis and as our friend, we thought he was sufficiently dead, that our children might think of him like Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson. Soon it became clear to us, you can't teach disbelief to a child you can't teach disbelief to a child. Only stories, wonderful stories. And we didn't have a story nearly as good. On parents' night, 
There were the arts and crafts, all spread out like appetizers. Then we took our seats in the church, and the children sang a song about the ark and hallelujah, and a song in which they jumped up and down for Jesus. I can't remember ever feeling so uncertain about what's comic and what's serious. Evolution is magical, but it's devoid of heroes. You can't say to your child, evolution loves you. <laughs> that story moves toward extinction, and nothing exciting happens for centuries. I did not have a wonderful story for my child, but she was beaming all the way home in the car, she sang the songs, occasionally standing up for Jesus. There was nothing to do but drive, to ride it out, and to sing along in silence. Nothing to do but to sing along in silence, because there are no gods. Thus, we can please ourselves. And yet... And yet, whose is that presence that touches me over the heart so that I am soothed and at peace? Today's sermon, like my others, is largely autobiography. It's been in the works for decades, from the Methodist and Presbyterian churches of my childhood to my vocations in science and in ministry, each of which engages life's mystery. And I use the word mystery not in the sense of a problem to solve, but mystery as amazement, wonder, humility, and reverence. Reverence for all that is our life. That's our hymn number 128, for all that is our life. Let me give you a vignette. Here's the first of two. Vignette number one. Back in the mid-1960s, some of us were, are able to remember that. Back in the 1960s, Hollywood released a film entitled The Graduate. Anybody remember? In the film, Dustin Hoffman stars as 21-year-old Ben, who graduates from an elite college. But Ben is unmotivated and adrift, his girlfriend, Elaine, dumps him in order to marry a frat boy. And toward the end of the film, Ben, in his desperation, dashes across California to the church where the wedding of his former girlfriend, Elaine, is now in progress. The ceremony is underway with the wedding party standing at the front at the altar and Elaine is preparing to speak her vows to frat boy. Suddenly, Elaine hears Ben's desperate screams coming from the back of the church, and she instantly changes her mind. Don't ask me how that happened. She instantly changes her mind and dashes toward Ben, leaving her fiancé standing dumbfounded at the altar. Elaine and Ben embrace and they dash toward the church exit. And then in a compelling symbol, Ben grabs a cross and he wedges it. 
He wedges it into the handles of the exit doors, locking the pursuing families within the confines of their conventional faith and their middle-class life. (laughs) Ben and Elaine leap on a passing bus, heading off into the unknown. And there the movie ends. Not happily ever after, but rather uncertain. And there's no sequel. There's no graduate too. (laughs) So whatever happened to Ben and Elaine? Perhaps they are still on the bus, on the road, with blank stares on their faces, forever tentative, in transit, toward who knows where. Let's try a second vignette. During the bicentennial not long ago, PBS broadcast a program entitled Darwin's Darkest Hour. And at one point, Darwin is riding in a carriage with his father, who warns him about marrying Emma Wedgwood, who is known to be quite religious. Darwin explains to his father, but she's a Unitarian. His father says, You know what Unitarianism is, don't you? The younger Darwin answers, yes, it's a feather bed for fallen Christians to land on. (laughs) Others might say it's a halfway house between Methodism and the golf course. There are a lot of versions of this. (laughs) It was back 30 years ago during my final year in divinity school when a soft-spoken Methodist from Georgia, John Cobb, taught a course in process relational theology, a course that turned my life around. This relational vision spoke directly to my life experience, to UU values, and the evolving interface between the secular and the sacred. It was not exactly a feather bed. It was hard work. It was a dance of change, and yet it liberated me from the dogmatic faith of my childhood and brought me here before you today, 30 years later, where every effort is arrayed on the inarticulate, in T.S. Eliot's words. So, process relational theology in about uh, 11 minutes, and I'm going to give you the punchline up front. It's from one of the pioneers, Alfred North Whitehead. He writes, there is a creative tendency in the universe to produce worthwhile things. Moments come when we can work with it, and it can work through us. But the tendency to produce worthwhile things is by no means universal. Other forces work against it. And insofar as you partake of this creative process, you partake of the divine. And that participation is your dignity and grandeur. So today I want to do three things. I want to summarize our long-held materialistic bias. Second, some remarks on personhood or selfhood. And third, a little bit about the process relational perspective and its implications. And for those interested in follow-up conversations, we gather each noon on each Wednesday at noon um, in room 19, and we'll be continuing through the rest of the month.
First of all, the materialistic world view. Look around the commons here. I mean, the microphone, the chairs, the piano, the screen, the art wall, all these appear as solid objects. And the common sense interpretation is that reality is constituted by substances. The substance of this microphone is such that if we return next week, it's likely to have the same identity. And, and this is the substantialist or materialist worldview, of course. And it derives from the Greeks who taught that the truth must be eternal. The truth must be, must be eternal. And if it's unchangeable, it has a solid, enduring quality. And thus, when we encounter solid objects like this podium, we give them names. And we use nouns and pronouns to name what appears to be permanent. By contrast, those who have grown up in Oriental cultures have a radically different perspective. A native of Japan would never begin a sentence with a noun or a pronoun, and then place verbs in a subsidiary position. To the Japanese, it is relationships and the flow of experience that are primary. To place a noun or a pronoun up front is to ascribe far too much concreteness to what is really an interaction. In the development of Western European languages, the separation of the pronoun from the verb only came along in about the seventh century. Those of you who've studied Latin and other European languages will know that the uh, verb and the pronoun are very often conflated into a single word. And yet it's not only inanimate objects such as pianos and microphones that we attribute this substantialist bias to. It's this bias about our selfhood and who you and I are that we need to reflect on next. Personal worth and dignity, these are cornerstones of our UU identity. And yet some problems emerge in attributing supreme worth to the individual. First of all, by elevating the self to such a place, the self also becomes the authority, the supreme authority. And this places high expectations upon the self. A self should be anchored in one's positionality. Otherwise, it would look unreliable if you were to change your mind. But there's a second problem in putting oneself at the gravitational center. It's a psychological problem. Just consider, what might be the most desirable ethical quality for such a well-anchored self? Well, the most desirable quality would be apathy. That is, to be free of pathos and to remain detached from all external influences. To remain unmoved by any events that might compromise or degrade one's carefully constructed positionality. In the worldview of ancient Greeks, Greece, which we have largely inherited, apathy was the supreme virtue. The ideal person was apathetic, above it all, detached from worldly and impure influences, unperturbed by events. Now, please understand, I don't downplay personal worth and dignity, but there has been an unfortunate byproduct 
uh, a worldview suggesting that the ideal qualities are concreteness and apathy. Emotional apathy. And it's these qualities which process relational philosophy calls into question. Now, a little bit about this process relational view. The leading figure was a mathematician, Alfred North Whitehead. And his radical notion is that if we look closely at every experience, such as this service today, it's constituted not by objects, but events. This service... It has a starting time and an ending time, a location, participants. But what does this service consist of? Can we break it down into its constituent parts? Does the service necessarily consist of lighting a chalice and singing songs and placing chairs in this configuration? Suppose that we, one at a time, remove one element from the, from the event such as the microphone, or the chalice, or the minister. Would removing one component take away the service, the event? At what point would the service disappear if we incrementally take away one piece at a time? I think you can see there's something perplexing and also very powerful in this approach to human experience. Events don't lend themselves to being picked apart chopped into smaller and smaller pieces. This is, the, the Sunday service is more than a sum of its constituent parts. It's the relationships. And the same question applies to who am I as a person? What matters to me and what are the enduring qualities of my selfhood? Okay, let's consider the flow of experiences. Let's consider you sitting where you are, me up here right now. Suppose I ring the bell. Why did I do this? Some philosophers who try to explain why I rang the bell would say that it arises entirely out of the conditions which led up to this moment. That is, explaining why the event happens, all I have to do is look at all the preceding events, and if I really look carefully, I can see that I sort of had to do it. I had to do it because of past experiences and knowing what it sounds like and so forth. But Whitehead said, wait a minute. Despite the enormous influences of the past in shaping the present moment, one cannot explain an event entirely in terms of preceding events. Every event does grow out of its past, to be sure, but it also transcends past events. Decisions emerge in each moment that are more than the sum of what happened previously. And this, of course, is the realm of human freedom. In process thought, what is most valuable in human life is our capacity to transcend all the givens from the past and not simply be a victim of or a product of all past events. Now, this is what Whitehead calls God, but don't be misled by the G word or any other noun because this is not what process thought is getting at. 
Whitehead saying that there is constantly present in every cell of our bodies something that allows or calls forth possibility, the exercise of freedom. I had some degree of freedom in grabbing for that bell where I, was not, I did not have to do it because of the past. This is the central point of process thought. In every moment there is a realm of possibility within us and beyond us which participates and constitutes our being and it is co-creative with us. We can in every moment be much more than the predetermined products of our past. We can exercise human responsibility and creativity to play and to dance in the empty spaces. So, a little caveat, don't be misled by the G word if certain Christian theologians may use it. That's not the point. I find other phrases far more helpful. For example, toss out the G word and instead use the call from the future. The opening up of space in which to exercise my human freedom. The realm of possibilities. The opportunity to transcend my past. That which invites me to move beyond my learned limitations. The source of novelty, freedom, purpose, and creativity in every human life. One can say all these things without the G word. It takes a little more effort. But to me, it's much more engaging and relevant to lived experience. We began with the words of Buckminster Fuller, a far-sighted genius, and his relational vision early in life was later corrected. If you've seen photographs of him, you know the enormous spectacles that he wore. I want to conclude with a poem about another genius, the French Impressionist painter, Claude Monet. If you've seen any of Monet's paintings in art museums, or perhaps have been to the gardens at Giverny and seen the water lilies, you appreciate Monet's remarkable skill at blending colors and shapes to create flowing sensations of interrelationships. Monet also had very imperfect eyesight. Very imperfect eyesight. Nevertheless, he beheld and interpreted the world with a compelling vision. At one point in Monet's life, a surgeon did offer to correct his eyesight. He offered to correct it. But Monet refused the operation. Monet chose to retain his relational vision, perhaps with words such as these from our epilogue. And I'll read these. It's a poem entitled, Monet Refuses the Operation. Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights of Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age or an affliction. I tell you it has taken me all of my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and to finally banish the edges you regret that I don't see, to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart 
are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before I could see a cathedral built of parallel shafts of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, Wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you that the houses of parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux. And light becomes what it touches. It becomes water. Lilies on water. Above and below water. Becomes lilac and yellow and white and cerulean lamps. Small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it. To paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones and skin and clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world blue vapor without end. <laughs>